0: Once again, it's the money that drives the activism, whether it's a nonprofit or a business, it's the investors or the donors that say, you know, what a brand or a nonprofit should do or shouldn't do. You know, I would say today, investors and donors are the ruling class in some ways because they control so much of how we show up in the world.
1: This is Evolve CPG's Brands for a Better World podcast, featuring purpose-driven leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. With better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there though. You can help us reach more people by taking a moment to leave us a rating or review, which is critical for podcast algorithms and by sharing your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you worked in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. Hello, impact-driven professionals. On April 27th, we're co-hosting an Impact Driven Community Day, a virtual event with programming that covers mindset, heartset, visioning, strategy, marketing, branding, and collaboration. It's from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Pacific, and the best part is, it's all free. Plus, you'll get to network with fellow impact-driven leaders. Just visit impact-driven.com for more information and to RSVP. And now back to the interview. On this episode, we're speaking with Miyoko Shinner, founder of Miyoko's Creamery, about brand activism, food colonialism, age and entrepreneurship, her unplanned exit from her namesake brand, and much more.
0: Well, hello there. I'm Miyoko Shinner, and I am a longtime vegan activist and entrepreneur. I've had a whole bunch of businesses for the last 30, 35 years. Most recently, I'm the founder of Miyoko's Creamery. Uh, We'll talk more about that later. And I'm also the founder of two nonprofits, Rancho Compasión, which is a farmed animal sanctuary, and LEAP, Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and the Planet, which is an alternative to 4-H and FFA.
1: Nice. That's awesome. Thanks for that. Oh, I'm also
0: an author, so I've written six cookbooks. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's a lot of cookbooks. That's yeah. not just like one cookbook. You know? so no, no. That's amazing. And we'll kind of dive into some of that as we have our chat too. But I'm thankful for you to carving out some time to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a little while. Partly just a, a lot of what you do and put out into the world. I love your perspectives on things. So, I just wanted to nerd out on some of those perspectives in the conversation and share yeah. it out. So I appreciate one it. Of the th- things I've heard you talk about is this idea of, you know, activism and brands. One of the statements I I saw you post, I think it was on LinkedIn, you mentioned that if you're not an activist, you're just a product peddler. Um, So, I, I love that statement because for me, it's like business is all about the mission and the purpose, right? Otherwise, why are you doing it? So, I'm curious, where did your activist spirit came from and what would you say you feel is the role of business and brands and activism?
0: Yeah, you know, the whole idea of the merger of brands and activism is something that took me a long time to sort of evolve within myself and understand how business actually could be that. And while I was inventing all these businesses for many, many years, at the back of my mind, it was always because of activism. But there was still a part of my mind in the beginning trying to reconcile how can business and activism merge. It took me many years to really evolve that thinking. But it all started for me when I went vegetarian when I was 12 years old because I just didn't want to eat animals. And then I went vegan when I started learning about the dairy industry, which was very little known at the time. This was in the mid 1980s. And this was pre internet. Information was lacking overall. But I happened to read an article about it and it just woke me, it just shook me up. And I thought, oh my God. And my transition was slow at the time, but because it was hard to find the foods that I loved, especially dairy, butter and cheese, you know, it seemed like something that you couldn't live without at one time. (laughs) And so it took a while for me to get there. And for a long time, I actually downplayed my activism. I downplayed the reasons I was vegan, because if I was at a dinner table trying to make polite dinner conversation, I didn't want to offend anybody.
1: And I think most
0: of us go through life trying to get along, trying to fit in, trying to not offend others. And that's a big part of our existence. And at some point you get to maybe an age, maybe because I, you know, I'm just old enough now where I don't care what people (laughs) think about me, but you finally realize you have to speak the truth because you only have so much time left on this planet. And if you don't spend your life speaking the truth, then what's the purpose? And You also find that speaking the truth is really, really powerful because when you actually speak the truth, people listen. And when you're just trying to fit in, that's all you end up doing is fitting in. You don't actually make a difference. So that sort of realization took many, many years of just personal development to come to terms with. But that was, you know, I became a vegan because I wanted to stand up for something, but I was afraid to speak about it for a long time. And there was a long period of development before I really gained the courage to speak up and speak out. You
1: yeah. You know, yeah, I've had this, that kind of note pop up with a few guests. And a question I've asked them, and I'd love to ask you too, is what do you think it took or what was that growth path for you? Like, where did you build the confidence in order to start being yourself and speaking the truth? Was it just like you were saying, age, like you just get older and stop caring as much about fitting in, or was it? confidence in your activism or business acumen or publishing books or something that that made you feel like you need to start owning your own kind of perspective and opinions?
0: It's a lot of things, but I would say that having online, this sort of digital shift really, really helped because I began to understand what was impacting people, how people were resonating to the things that I was saying. So in the very beginning we all had a limited audience only people that you came in in contact with and I was giving talks and cooking demos but I was in an echo chamber of people that were already vegan or oh, vegetarian right. and I didn't have an opportunity to reach a wider audience at the time and when I did reach a wider audience I sort of you know I just pussyfooted around making sure that I didn't offend people and I couldn't reconcile the idea of business and activism I mean I had to make for me I was I had food businesses, vegan food businesses because I couldn't see myself doing something that I didn't believe in. And so I had to do these things because I had to also make a living. I had to pay my rent, you know, for example. And so I would find these food businesses that could support me but at the same time I was passionate about and I believed in, but I was afraid to talk about what the real reason was to people other than the echo chamber because I didn't want to offend them. I think over time because of the internet I think in in the very beginning, even at Miyoko's, we were outright about using the word vegan, but it became very, very clear that the message of that I was putting out into the universe resonated with more people than just vegans. That when you actually speak the truth in a way that is compassionate, that is taking, meeting people where they are to some degree, but not stepping back and say, well, I'm not going to use the word vegan because I don't want to offend people. I'm only going to say plant-based, but really owning the word vegan and using it in a way that inspired people, which is why I got the word vegan, phenomenally vegan tattooed on my arm because it's a conversation starter and people can say, what does that mean? And then I can go, oh my God, you mean you're not vegan? Oh, you are so (laughs) missing out. Let me just tell you all the wonderful things about being vegan. You know, once you can actually own that and really speak the truth and show that you care about something that's beyond just your personal life, but you care about the lives of animals, you can tell their stories. People start going, oh my God, I can't believe that. You just touched me in a way that I've never been touched before. And then they start to listen. But if you don't have a point of opinion, no one's listening because nobody cares. I mean, you have to be willing to take the risk of maybe offending some people. You're going to offend people no matter what you do anyway, whether you have an opinion or you don't have an opinion. But the fact is, if, if you learn to speak your truth and find your voice in a way that is strong but caring, people's ears perk up. And people go, oh, my God, wow, that was powerful. So the more I did it, the more I learned that I could do it and that I can do it better each time. And I think that's the thing is that you know brands don't understand that so many brands are so afraid to speak the truth. I mean, this whole conversation about, well, we want to be more inclusive. That's why we don't use the word vegan. That's why we use the word plant-based. We want to be inclusive. Well, you know, if you're a marketer, your job is to get people to care. If they don't care right now, that's your job. And if you can't get people to care, and all you're going to do is play the safe game and play where people are already operating, then you're not a very successful marketer.
1: Absolutely. It's also like if you're trying to be for everybody, then you are for nobody, right? You're for nobody. That's right. Any good marketer would know that the setting some boundaries of who you're targeting is, is a positive thing because that way, just like what you're saying about living your life boldly, being yourself and letting your light shine and, and having bringing that passion into your conversations will get people listening. It's the same thing with a brand, right? If you're not leaning right. into something and expressing your passion as a company, as a brand, then who's going to listen to you? You're just going right. to be forgettable at that point.
0: Exactly. And I really think that's how we just dis- differentiate ourselves. And the fact that, you know, so many so-called food tech companies today are raising, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars just from the get-go, even pre-revenue. And until 2021, for the first six and a half years of our business, we had only raised $25 million. But we, you know, Got into 30,000 stores, and we had this. We had established not only a national, but a global presence. And we didn't do that from spending millions of dollars on marketing. We did it by simply having a strong, honest, bold message.
1: Yeah. Which, to your point, like the more you can lean in on your purpose and your passion, the further your dollars stretch, your marketing dollars stretch, yes. right? If you, have a generic campaign that people need to look at 20 times before they even remember anything about it, that's going to cost you a lot of money. (laughs) But if you have a a bold campaign. Yeah. I mean, the way I
0: I look at advertising, I always, I take away the logo. I take away the brand and I go just by looking at the message and the photograph or whatever it is, I go, would I know what that brand was just by looking at the messaging? And if you don't, then you're just another brand that's saying that's touting the same thing as every other brand. You could just swap out logos and it wouldn't make a difference.
1: Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the Nike campaign that was supporting Colin Kaepernick and they just put these billboards and ads out that said, you know, stand for something even if it costs you everything, which is a great statement as well. But after that ad, which a lot of companies would have been afraid to run because it was very controversial at the time, you know, there was a certain demographic out in the US like burning all their Nikes and saying they're never gonna buy them again because they can't believe that they supported this movement or something like that. But then other people were like, heck yeah, that's exactly what we need to be doing and I'm I'm proud to be part of this Nike tribe for lack of a better word. And from what I remember, I think they're valuation and through the sales that they generated from that campaign, their valuation went up like a billion dollars or something like that overnight, basically because of how effective the campaign was. But that goes to your point. If you're just always afraid of offending somebody and scaring someone away, you're missing all the opportunity to really connect with your true customer. And why not develop that true customer more and let go of the other people who aren't really your target anyway?
0: That's right. Because that true customer is going to go out and evangelize your product and your brand. And it's just going to grow because of that. I feel like, you know, the whole plant based industry right now or the so called plant based industry, I'm using industry terminology at this point is still so much in its nascency. And if we're truly trying to combat climate change and we really only have a few years to deal with that, then just tiptoeing around and trying not to offend. Isn't really going to help us grow. I mean, if we don't get that message out there, and today people are listening more than ever. People want a point of view, they want an opinion, they want strong leadership. They're not looking for just something safe because people don't know what to do anymore. People are feeling confused and lost. They need inspiration. And if you aren't, you know, if you're too afraid to inspire people, then we're not going to be able to move this movement forward.
1: Absolutely. That actually reminds me of of one reason why I think brands as activists is such a powerful thing, and that's because, to your point, people want strong leadership. And I think if we could count on our governments to make the changes and set policies that are going to help us move forward to a just regenerative society where climate change is tackled and everyone's being taken care of and living their best life, then brands wouldn't have to take a stand as much. But because governments aren't moving fast enough or aren't willing to take a stand because they're so divisive, brands then step in as the most prominent player in moving the needle because they control the supply chain and they influence consumers, right? So the more a brand takes a stand, the more they'll connect with the people who actually give a shit and want to help move the world forward.
0: So you just answered the question that you asked me, which is, which I sort of like <laughs> went off and and sort of lost track of. But, you know, why did I make that statement? If you're not an activist, you're just a product peddler, because that's exactly right. Because today, brands are better situated than anybody else. Uh, brands and celebrities, but celebrities, I would argue, are brands too. Brands are situated better than anybody to actually get something moving forward. And so it's our responsibility, you know, especially if we're all saying, oh, we're all mission-based, well, then do something about it. Be an activist. Put yourself out there because then – because we need to move consumers. If we can change consumer behavior, we can actually make an impact. Otherwise, you're just thinking about, well, what's the biggest – you know, what should I do for the biggest ROI? And then we're basically just back to pushing products. So I'm sorry, I offended some people. I know I invest. I offended some brands. I offended investors for sure. I've gotten really good at doing that. But <laughs> the fact is, you know, we're not doing enough. You know, all these brands that, and all these investors that say, yeah, you know, we care about the future. Well, then do something about it. If you really care about the future, then speak your truth, but they won't.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> love that. And it just makes me think like, if nobody's offended, are you really even trying hard enough? No. <laughs> because like you said, if you're not willing to speak your truth, like when you speak your truth, there's going to be people who agree and people who disagree. But if you're not speaking your truth and you just take the neutral ground, then yeah, you can get away without offending anybody, but you're also not going to inspire anybody. So, if you're truly aiming move. to inspire, you have to be willing to offend, right? Right.
0: Right. You absolutely have to be willing to offend. And, and hopefully that groundswell grows of those that are inspired enough to actually create a movement. I mean, at this point, what we need is a grassroots movement because the government, you know, sure ain't going to do anything, as you were saying. So we need to nurture that grassroots movement. We need consumers to be at the forefront of making change.
1: I love it. I've done a lot of nonprofit leadership, as well as just general community building, and I guess serial entrepreneur, I suppose, of for-profit businesses. And as I've kind of looked at the power of all those different avenues I have taken, I while I love nonprofits and there's a good place for them, I truly believe that a mission-driven for-profit company has the best chance of changing the world because they are self-funded, by which I mean they fund their activism through selling of good products. Ideally, if they're mission-driven, their products themselves also change the world, are more sustainable, healthier, whatever. And then that way they can actually have a more sustainable impact model. Whereas nonprofits, again, there's a good place for them. But the only way they can move the needle is begging other people for money, which is variable and it takes a lot of time. But like at mission-driven for-profit companies... I think have the best chance of really pushing us forward,
0: yeah, I would agree, and I would also say that there's a role for nonprofits as well because the idea is pure activism on the part of most nonprofits, I would hope, although at this point I think there's a i've you know there's been for example organizations like Greenpeace that have just really changed quite a bit since their inception and and they're more they're toning down their messaging much more than They did initially when they first started, and they were far more activist. So, even in the nonprofit sector, we're seeing a lot of toning down of the messaging because, once again, it's the money that drives the activism. Whether it's a nonprofit or a business, it's the investors or the donors that say, you know, what a brand or a nonprofit should do or shouldn't do. You know, I would say today, investors and donors are the ruling class in some ways because they control so much of how we show up in the world.
1: Yeah. Investors, donors, and then maybe like lobbyists or something like that on the government side. Right. And it's always the classic statement of follow the money. It's, it's wherever that money is coming from is, is where the power is. But I like to think that purpose driven businesses are able to help shift some of that money. Granted to your point, it's a lot of investors, but hopefully Good and more and more good investors, I think, are popping up that are are mission-driven and taking the longer view and investing in purpose. So I think I'm excited to see that movement moving along where we can shift businesses to a little bit more of a stakeholder model than a shareholder model through better shareholders, right? Better shareholders who know that they're putting the money towards something important and they're willing to take a little bit of a backseat to the mission.
0: Absolutely. No, we absolutely have to shift how funding occurs in this country, not just for nonprofits, but for brands. We really do.
1: Yeah. Especially with the complete inequities in funding as well. I think that's (laughs) priority number one. And then (laughs) maybe co-priority number one is also just get more of that money shifted to impact-driven businesses that are making the world a better place instead of extracting from the environment and people. So with that said, I love that kind of angle that you take with the brands as activists. But another angle that popped up that I thought would be fun to dive into a little bit is this idea of food colonialism and yes, it's it was peaked by one of your pet peeves, alternative protein as basically a form of food colonialism. So, can you break that particular colonialism down and then just talk about like where how else you see that affecting modern food culture?
0: Yeah, uh, food colonialism, I define as the act of one culture imposing how we eat upon other cultures. And we all know that the Western diet has impacted much of the world to the point that we're defining what food is by how we eat here in the United States, largely. I'm, I'm not even saying Europe, but you know, we here in the United States are blind to the fact that other cultures have eaten other ways for centuries and have done just fine. And we have this idea that we need animal protein, which is also a recent phenomenon because Americans have never eaten this much meat in their lives. I mean, this is something that, you know, really has increased over the last 100 years or so, but pre- predominant, really since World War II is really when the rise in animal products has started. But we sort of assume that we need to help other communities eat the same way we do. I was just horrified one time when I was in Vietnam. We were looking at our cashew supply chain there and there was this giant billboard from Nestle about how they were bringing good dairy nutrition to Vietnam. Well, Vietnam <laughs> d- didn't have no. a dairy culture. I mean, they they didn't <laughs> yeah. they they never had dairy and there's no reason all of a sudden after you know thousands of years that they all of a sudden they need it. And then I was talking to another French dairy company that was telling me about their social initiative where they were providing their cheese to women street peddlers so that they could make more money and feed their families. And of course, become addicted to cheese at the same time. And they thought this was a great social initiative that I would applaud them for. And I was actually pretty horrified. I didn't tell them that. I probably would at this point, but at the time I was trying to smile and and be polite. And I was born in Japan and I went to school there. And uh, I mean, at least until kindergarten, first grade and ate a very Japanese diet. And I moved to the United States. And all of a sudden I had to have milk with every lunch. I mean, like they made you take milk. I thought it was disgusting. You know, I mean, I and Japan's another culture that did not have dairy products. And didn't consume a lot of meat. In fact, it was uh, by royal decree, because it was a Buddhist country, it was vegan for 800 years. That was actually a law prohibiting the consumption of animal flesh. I think fish was not precluded, but animal, you know, four-legged creatures, etc. You weren't supposed to eat them. And so there are all these cultures all over the world. And then I hear one of the cell-based companies saying they're going to be building bioreactors in Africa so they can bring good animal sell meat to the Africans. And so to me, this is food cologne. Is it really helping the local communities? Is it helping their environmental impact? Is it helping their economy? Or is it taking over and finding inroads? I mean, you just think about You know, Nestle and formula in India in the 19, I I can't remember what year it was when they first introduced baby formula to Indian mothers and all the babies started getting sick because it was lacking some vital nutrients we didn't understand were actually in breast milk. But when a Western country infiltrates another culture and imposes their food values upon them and makes a cultural shift that impacts everything from how they eat, which means it impacts the economics and allows the Western culture, the Western companies to benefit economically, that is food colonialism. It's been going on for centuries, uh, actually, but little by little, but it is becoming very, very serious in the last few decades. And that is what I'm afraid of as we invent the, the, reinvent the future of food, when we start thinking about what should the future of food look like? I don't want to make the same mistakes that we have in the past, but I fear that the so-called food tech and plant based we're making those same mistakes we're imposing our values on the rest of the world
1: yeah which makes sense and i think the way you were describing it with the alternative meat is that or alternative protein is by calling it alternative we're assuming that's the primary protein whereas in a lot of other yes. cultures there's plenty of other proteins that they've been eating for centuries you know so like why are we calling those alternative
0: that's exactly right. I mean, meat was not consumed very much. I'm not saying that they were all vegan, but it was something that you had once in a while. Otherwise, you relied on on beans and vegetables and rice and other grains, and, and you did just fine. Um, you weren't starving because you didn't have meat. If you were starving, it's because you just weren't getting enough calories because of whatever, you know, distribution, government, whatever.
1: That's one thing that always blows my mind about, I think it's mostly American culture, but maybe it's just fitness culture all around the world where they just have these crazy ideas of how much protein they need per day and in what form, right? But there's a lot of foods have protein that aren't meat and you don't need as much protein. The average person doesn't eat as, need as much protein as these like Olympic athletes or whatever that are pounding tons of protein supplements to to meet their requirements. So it just always blows my mind when I talk to somebody about eating vegan or something, and they say, "Well, I, where would I get my protein from?" And it just no, blows my mind that they joke. obviously know nothing about food. Right? <laughs> if they if they don't know that other foods have protein. But they
0: bought into everything that they've been told through advertising.
1: Exactly. Like protein is meat, right? right? So that's I love that perspective. It also makes me think about processed foods too. A lot of cultures obviously didn't have processed foods before we started exporting our processed foods into their countries, making them eat as unhealthy as us is one example. But another example is like almost like global trade related to where one case study that I know of is like quinoa, for example, like the US culture didn't know much about quinoa for a while. And then all of a sudden it took off as this superfood because it's complete protein for plant-based food. And so, we started buying all the world's quinoa and importing it into the United States, which meant the countries that were normally growing the quinoa could no longer afford to eat their own crops because it was worth way more money to export. Which meant they had to change their diet from their staple of eating quinoa to other cheaper foods, maybe even stuff they import, garbage food that they imported from us or something like oh that, right? Oh my so how ironic That's a whole that? other example. It's a where, whole other
0: thing. But yeah. you know, that whole quinoa example, I love it in some ways because it also shows you that you don't have to make an exact replica of something that we're currently eating like meat or nuggets or whatever right, in order right. for a food to succeed. In other words, if we just had a campaign on lentils, if we just Mm -hmm. like push the heck out of lentils, lentils do a body good. I don't know, whatever it is. Like If we (laughs) put our effort into lentils and maybe not quinoa, things that we could grow right here in our own country, we could not only get people's, if we get people's minds to shift to thinking lentils are like this magical food, which I think they are then we could save so much. I mean, not just human health, but we could also save farmers. We could get farmers growing lentils. You know, All the dairy farmers that are collapsing because of the decline in dairy could now start growing lentils, for example. So, I mean, there's a lot that we can do with branding and messaging and marketing to shift consumer behavior and consciousness. And we're not doing that because there's no direct, we need to just come up with a business that really can see the profit in something like this.
1: Right. Or like a group of businesses, right? Because I think some of American culture was created through advertising campaigns like gut milk or pork, the other white meat or beef, it's what's for dinner. It's like those campaigns were pounded into people's minds over and over and over again to the point where it became part of culture that you didn't question. And if we could shift from those kind of campaigns to like you said, like lentils does a body good or whatever, whatever the campaign would be that would re-educate the future generations of America that you don't have to just eat dairy or meat or whatever to get your nutritional needs. And one of the trends I've seen, which I like, is a lot more professional athletes or Olympians or whatever coming out as as being vegan, proving to the world that even at that level, you don't need all your freaking meat that you think you need on your plate.
0: Right. Yeah. No, absolutely.
1: Nice. Nice. Well, I love those topics and I love following all your interesting viewpoints. So, so thanks for putting those out in the world. But shifting a little bit to, I guess, some non-taking a stance on things, but you were named to the Forbes 50 over 50 list, which was awesome, and one of the editors, Maggie McGrath noted that that list was basically a group of people representing folks who were rewriting the rules of success, among other things. So I'm curious, since you were on that list, how would you define success after all that you've achieved and been through? Because I know that maybe in early in your career, sex, success looks like one thing, but as you get more experience and get more wisdom, maybe the definition of success changes. So what does it look like for you right now?
0: You know, I, th- I think the definition of success definitely does change. You know, we live in a culture that extols success. And we wake up every single morning, most people thinking, how can I succeed today? How can I achieve this, that, or the other thing? And we love successful people. For some reason, successful people have more clout. We believe them more. And success equates money. The, when somebody is successful, meaning typically when we say someone is successful, it means that they've made a lot of money. That's the typical understanding of the word success. And for some reason, when someone is successful, we give them more credence. We believe them more. Let's say you put up, I don't know, just somebody who, a bus driver next to a Fortune 500 company CEO, and they both gave their opinions on something. The average (laughs) person would listen more to the Fortune 500 company CEO than to the bus driver even if the bus driver had profound things to say and the media probably wouldn't pick up on whatever the bus driver had to say either i mean we the media picks up on those that have achieved financial success or media success to some degree so it's a sort of forever recirculating system that keeps this notion of money equating success sort of in the forefront of our minds and i think we need to rewrite what that means For me, success was at the time that I was named to the Forbes list, and now really about what is the impact I can have on human consciousness, on animals, on the world. What is, and right now, as painful as this whole thing with Miyoko's has been, the amount of public support that I've gotten as a result of the falling out with Miyoko's to me is a demonstration of the success that I've had. In other words, I was able to touch people or inspire people. And through that we can create a movement that will hopefully change the world. So to me that should be the new definition of success should be how many people have you been able to touch or inspire or whose hearts you've been able to change. Not just, you know, were you successful enough that you went out and bought a yacht? I mean, who cares? If I succeed and I make a lot of money, but the world is crumbling around me. (laughs) Yeah. Who cares about that?
1: Yeah. I 100% agree. It's just, and again, maybe this is an American culture thing, but maybe it's all modern culture, just being obsessed with money. And it is weird that that's the default that we think of when we think of success is maybe somebody who never did anything with their life, but happens to have a lot of family money looks successful, even though they haven't done anything to earn that success or even if you have been successful in business but did it by extracting resources and paying unfair wages and polluting the planet and doing all this other kind of stuff. Is that really success that you basically just stole money from the planet and people like
0: That's exactly we're basically
1: right. elevating, you know, a modern day bank robber at that point to being successful. And and I guess it just c- calls into question what is success? Is there even a universal definition of success? Like one of the things I've been thinking lately is maybe there isn't like a one way to be successful and you have to achieve this one criteria to be successful in the world. Maybe it's more, we all need to define what success is and maybe it's just dependent upon our goals. Like maybe maybe there's somebody who's more of an introvert and doesn't want to be an outspoken person, but wants to just Be the best family member or the best friend or whatever they possibly can. And if you make one person's life better, maybe that's success too. Maybe you don't have to go out and change politics of uh, an entire country to be successful, you know? Like there could be different definitions.
0: Yeah. Or happiness. I mean, how many of us wake up every morning saying, How am I going to be happy today? And how am I going to help somebody else be happy today? We don't. We wake up thinking about how do I achieve these goals? We're a goal obsessed country. And at the end of the day, we have to ask, does success equate happiness? If I achieve my goal today, am I really happy? And did it make anybody else happy? Why aren't we focusing on how we can become happy? Happier as as a nation, happier as a world. How do we do that?
1: Yeah, I love that. Was it Bhutan, if I remember correctly, that was doing that gross yeah. happiness index for a while? I think they stopped yes. doing it. yeah. And I haven't looked into why, but I love that idea of like, how do we measure and focus more around happiness? And I guess, especially as with the changing world with increased technology and AI and such, right? There's all these conversations uh, historically with all these, the evolution of business, where even though we have all this technology and all these things that could technically make our lives easier and we could be spending more time and leisure, we actually work more <laughs> hours the more advanced we get. So as AI becomes more of a thing and it starts maybe making some jobs easier, are we just taking jobs away from people or are we just going to require them to work less so they can spend more time on their, on their life and happiness? Like for, let's just say a tech company, for example, if you could eliminate 10,000 jobs or reduce everyone's work week by 10 hours a week, which one do you think the tech company is going to do? Probably so, eliminate 10,000 eliminate 10, jobs. But wh- how much better would it be if they just let everyone work 10 hours less a week? Now, the happiness and productivity and everything would go through the roof of their existing team instead of just cutting people because you can put robots in their place.
0: Like, I, you know. I love that. I, I 100% agree.
1: Yeah, my mind just so many, are on so many angles for this. But like, there's been in social media, I keep seeing this video clip of Bob Marley pop up where some interviewer must've been back in the seventies or something. I'm not sure, but like asked him, like, are you, what did he say? Are you a wealthy man or something like that? And he says, what do you mean by wealthy? And he said, well, do you have a lot of money and possessions or something? He said, money and possessions make you rich. Well, I don't have those kind of riches. My richness is in like love and happiness and stuff. So I love it. Even defining wealth, I think could be looked at in a different way. So thanks for nerding out on (laughs) success for a little bit. And speaking of which, I have a lot of, you were nominated to the 50 over 50 list, which was amazing. And I think I was doing a little research and you started Miyoko's Creamery after lots of other successes, but at uh, age 57, if I got the dates right. Okay. And I have lots of conversations with people and they're like, let's say 30s and 40s who are like, well, I don't don't really love what I'm doing, but it's too late to change or shift or start a new career. And I'm always telling them like, what are you talking about? How is it too late? You still have like 30, 40 years of good working life left that you could be making a big impact in something. So, don't wait. Just go and start doing whatever makes your heart light up, right? So, you as perfect evidence of it's not too late because you founded this amazing company at age 57. I guess what I would love to know is what advice would you have for people who feel like maybe 30s, 40s, or 50s is too late to make a shift and start doing what they love?
0: Oh, my God. I think you just – okay. I'm going to go back to Nike. But remember that first slogan they came up with? Just do it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Nice.
0: I hate to say it, but you know, I talk to so many people who are out there planning everything to perfection to the point that they never actually get started and you just have to get started. You know, honestly, if I think part of the problem with youth is that they haven't built, it's like bodybuilding or anything, you have to actually work at it to build the muscles. And I think life is, you have to build the muscles for life. And sometimes you don't have it quite yet when you're in your thirties or maybe even your forties, because usually by then you're getting overwhelmed by life. Like maybe you've had kids and family and parents dying and, you know, I don't know, bad coworkers and, you know, shit is happening. And so you're feeling really, really overwhelmed and you're still relatively young in life. And so you haven't built up the life muscles yet. So. When I hear young people complain about things like that, <laughs> I often think it, you just haven't built those life muscles. So, I would just, you know, encourage them, pick yourself up. You're going to fall down many times in life, but you only have this one life. So, you know, give it a go and as long as you have energy, that's the other thing is, yeah, eat well and exercise so you have the energy to continue doing things. I mean, you know, I have enough energy to start a new project. I mean, I I'm not Tired yet. So if I can do it at 65, then you can do it and you're in your 30s and 40s.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So, But I think part of that conversation too is sometimes people are thinking, well, I've just spent 10, 20 years or whatever in this one career and now I'm going to start all over in this other. And that goes back to the energy that you're talking about. Yeah. And one thing I usually say to them is, well, you're not starting over. You're bringing all your 20 years of experience doing something point else point. into this yes. new career, which is going to make you more unique than other people that have only been in that new career, right? So if you shifted from being in management, now you're doing yes. UX design and somebody I was just talking to, well, you're bringing a lot of people skills. You're bringing a lot of experience and knowledge around budgeting and
0: No, you're absolutely right. Because life is a continuum. And you build upon each phase. And sometimes while you're going through life, you don't understand why did I do this? Or what was this all about? And you don't really understand how it all connects. But especially when you get older, like me, and you look back on your life, and you realize, ah, that period of my life helped me understand how to do this, that, or the other thing now. So you're absolutely right it all does connect and you are everything is you're building upon each thing. So I always tell my daughters like when they say well I really don't like this job or I don't like to do this or whatever I always tell them look it, it it's not forever you're you're not in this job for the rest of your life so learn what you can now from it um and you're going to find that there's a whole lot that you were able to take away from it at some point.
1: Yeah I love that. So as you've gone from Project to project or career phase to career phase, have you felt that age has become a barrier at all in anything that you've been doing? Or is it mostly just a benefit because of all that collected knowledge and wisdom and skill set?
0: I mean, I feel for myself, it's a benefit because it's all now beginning to make sense. Why did I do certain things at certain points in my life? Like it's almost like there was a great you know, I don't know, I don't know, a God that designed my life and said, you need to go through this at this time and this at that time. And despite what I'm going through right now, I'm figuring there's probably a reason for all of this as well, too. So there's a lot of things that I did or happened to me years ago that didn't make any sense. And I began to wonder, why did I spend three years doing this? And now it's all sort of beginning to make sense. So yeah, I think, yes.
1: That's awesome. I kind of, Reminds me of the song lyric: "You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need." Right? That's <laughs> so, right. so you yes. you yes. may not have the exact job you want right now, but you're getting critical experience that will make you better at that dream job in the future. And it's all yes. part of the it's all part of your journey. It's all part of the yes. path. Okay, so let's shift into the the current dilemma that is going on right now with your namesake company. So. I know that you can't necessarily share all the details right now, but I know after listening to the Instagram live with you and your lawyer kind of breaking down some of the situation, it sounds like there was some bad work culture stuff going on that you and other people were subject to that kind of caused this current stage of you being demoted and and then forced out, but then also legal battles. But can you first just paint the picture for anyone who's not aware of kind of what's going on and whatever level of detail you can offer. Yeah,
0: I'll share the facts, which is that I received a call on June 9th from a couple of board members telling me they had removed me as CEO, but they wanted to retain my services in some other capacity that was undefined. And then two months later, I was terminated from the company entirely. I had to hire an attorney because I had not been offered any severance or anything. But aside from that, one fact, uh, which is true, is that the company owns the trademark Miyoko's Creamery and Miyoko's Kitchen, but they do not own my name or image. They don't own Miyoko Shinner or me. And so I tried to reclaim my personal IP, the, the name and image license. That's what it's called. And we spent several months trying to negotiate a potential role for me, but we always got hung up on the name and image on how that would be used. And I had, I wanted to be used a certain way and we had issues about that. And they also very, I had filed a complaint about something that had been bothering me for quite a while there. And that I had complained verbally to the board about, which was the treatment of women by a certain individual Actually, a couple of individuals. There was a consultant also, and it's something that I noticed. This is a whole other discussion about misogyny. Misogyny can be very, very subtle, and sometimes you don't recognize what's happening to you until you see it over and over again, and it gets worse. the The more powerful you become, the higher up in, a, in an organization you get for a woman that is, or a person of color, and you know, the more is at stake, the worse it can become. And you start becoming challenged. And at first you think it's not really misogyny. Maybe it's just me, et cetera. And then it happens over and over again. And then you see it in other women or other people of color. And then you begin to see a pattern. And I had begun to complain about this thing about a year or so before I was let go. And in one meeting, I got very, very upset because of something that had happened that was extremely misogynistic, the way that I had been treated by a certain individual. And I got very upset and told the board that. I was visibly upset because it was it was so upsetting. So I finally, nothing was done. And I finally filed a written complaint and they put this individual under investigation. What I learned from HR people is that investigations typically wrap up in about six weeks. Well, this investigation has been going on nine months now. And there was still no results. So you know that says a lot. So that's what this lawsuit is. You know, I countersued the company. So I didn't finish. They fired me. And then they, you know, I said, Well, you don't you can't use my name or image anymore. And then they accused me of stealing intellectual property. You know, I guess we were trying to negotiate something. I'm not really sure. I can't really speak that much about it, but at the end of the day, unbeknownst to me, they released eight months after they fired me or six months after they fired me, they fired me on August 12th, they released a press release saying that they had parted ways with me. They didn't tell me that that they were going to be doing that. So I was shocked when that came out, an article came out. And then the next day, they sued me for stealing intellectual property. And in it, they made all these claims that I had been this terrible CEO, et cetera. I will say that at the end of 2019, right before the pandemic, the board bought me a Stella McCartney faux fur coat for doing such a great job. But in this lawsuit I had done, I was a terrible CEO. So I countersued for, you know, what I've been complaining about all along, which was discrimination and the unlawful use of my name and image. And that's where we are right now. All of that's in the public sphere. You can go and read it. So I'm not sharing anything that's not in there, but I hired Lisa Bloom, who is a rock star attorney. And right now we are headed to mediation. So we'll see what happens in that.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that background. And again, sorry that you've had to go through all that. I would wish I could say it's rare in the business world to experience these this kind of sexism or racism or discrimination or other things like that. But unfortunately, you hear about a lot of this kind of stuff. You would just hope that it wouldn't happen to female founded <laughs> and, and led company. But right but it's not always within the founder's control, especially when you bring on investors and such. So speaking of which, I don't know if you can say or if you have an opinion on this, but do you feel like part of your ultimate, you know, demotion and removal is, you know, obviously maybe partly due to you filing complaints, but you also mentioned that they're now claiming that you are not suited for the job or a terrible CEO or something like that. But Obviously, you were a good enough CEO to bring the company to the level where it is now. So, do you feel like part of like what they're trying to do there is just hedge their bets and paint a story that will make it so that you can't file or win some sort of counterclaim? Or do you feel like part of the reason this all happened was also discrimination? Like they felt like a... A woman CEO or something like that would, wasn't going to be able to get the company where it is because they only trust men CEOs to scale a company to the size they wanted, or something like that. Do you? You have know, any I, I don't know.
0: I don't know, but I mean, I don't have an MBA. You know, I've just been a serial entrepreneur, but I was told, and these are words that I will repeat your scrappy ways may have gotten us here, but they're not going to get us a 200 million. So, there that is and i have
1: heard from some ceos like when they are talking about scaling that they say you know the team that got you to you know like 10 million or whatever is not the team that'll get you to 100 million and that's not the team that'll get you to a billion and that and and to some degree that makes sense and i think founders aren't always like founders who are more of starters can sometimes be better at starting something than maintaining it. You know, maybe you get bored and want to move on (laughs) to the next thing. So there's a difference between like more of the visionary founder and the CEO type founder. And so I could see how maybe at some point you or they felt like, well, we need somebody that's used to growing billion dollar businesses or something. However, I also feel like that should have just been a conversation and asking you what you want and where you want to fit into the company. And maybe if you felt like, you know what, I'm not into scaling that big. I want to be more about the mission. Can I just change the chief mission officer, or the chief vision officer, which I've seen some founders do when they decide that they're not into the operational side of things. So, it's, I think that's what I find especially gross about the situation is that they, they didn't even make it a conversation. They just made the decision for you, which again, to me, feels a bit like discrimination.
0: Yeah, I mean there's a lot. Absolutely. You know, I mean I think there is something that is different about this company which is that there there was a mission. And you're not going to be able to just go out and hire another MBA that has the same you know, how many people who have scaled companies have had this kind of mission focused brand. But the other thing that I would have to say is scaling a company to 200 million that's making I don't know, uh potato chips or bars, or cereal, breakfast cereal. That's not the same thing as very few people have scaled a so-called plant-based food tech company, or whatever you want to call it, You know, industry terminology I'm throwing out, not my terminology. How many people have actually scaled something like this to 200 million? We don't even understand who the consumer is. And so is there somebody out there? Is there another CEO that's run a Fortune 500 company that really knows how to do this? And are they going to lose a lot of customers along the way if they try to grow it just like they would a breakfast cereal company? So we don't understand this the consumer base. We don't understand the industry well enough that you know there has to be a lot of intuition.
1: Yeah, I've personally seen a lot of exactly what you're talking about. Company feels like the founder is not the one to take them to the next level. They bring in this other quote unquote experienced CEO but that person comes from a completely different industry. And every time I've personally seen it, the company actually goes down (laughs) afterwards. And I think part of that, and it happens too when a company gets acquired and the founder leaves, as soon as a founder-led company that's built on a mission and a passion of that founder and their deep expertise of that area, that product or that kind of industry niche, as soon as you remove that you're basically ripping the heart out of the company and you're losing connection to your consumers and you're losing the purpose and and kind of direction. And then decisions just start being made based on cost of goods and profit margin and other market opportunities. And maybe the companies start launching products that don't make sense for the brand or don't make sense for the consumer or they start cutting quality and you start losing the consumer. They cut certifications because they're too expensive and they lose the consumer. And they make all these growth-based business decisions and forget the whole point of the company in the first place. And it almost always kind of goes bad at that point. So, I feel like even when a company gets acquired, they should always keep the founder on for as long as possible, at least from on the board or something like that to help guide the decisions and and help them understand the culture, etc. But to your point, if they're just going to Remove you because you don't have a fancy MBA or you haven't scaled a business to a billion dollars or something like that. Well, who are they going to put in place and how is their knowledge any better than yours? If they don't know your industry, if they don't have your passion, if they don't know the community, they better spend the first few years of their time there getting to know all that stuff at the very least. But even so, that isn't going to be the same kind of experience. So I feel like supplementing the team is better than just removing the founder and replacing them with someone else that isn't going to understand the brand or the culture of the customer.
0: I agree. I mean, you know, I think there probably would have been a time for me to step down, but I don't think it was then. I think that with founder-led companies, you have to reach more of a critical mass before you can bring in some other leadership. Because, you know, we're still way in our infancy, And we really needed to at least get to become an adolescent or a teenager or something to be able to, you know, and, and I think that's the mistake that a lot of brands make, because the thing is that the investors have a timeline to cash out on their investment. And so oftentimes really establishing a brand just takes longer, like really establishing a brand in a really profound way where it can't change takes longer than you know, the timeline for a fund.
1: Right, exactly. That's why I like some of these more long-term funds like Next World Evergreen that are set up to not look at five or 10-year turn and burn kind of stuff, but they're looking at more like 20 a 100-year year funds and, yes. and letting companies take their time. But that also reminded me of our conversation with Seth Goldman after Coca-Cola kind of discontinued on tea and he was getting ready to launch Just Ice Tea. And I was asking him if he would... Knowing what he knows now, would would he sell a company again? Knowing that eventually it might get dropped, and therefore the mission dropped by that company. And and he said he was not thinking about that right now with his current businesses. But to your point, what you were just saying, he said, "I think the main thing I would do is make sure that I waited until it was a good time to sell it." By which he meant, like, I think he said something like, "I would want it to get to at least a hundred million in revenue or something like that before I sell it." For a few reasons, so that you're really established with your customers and established in the market. And so that you're not so small when you get scooped up by a General Mills or a Coca-Cola or whatever, that you're just this tiny little thing that they can barely pay attention to. Like It should be substantial enough to where they can put some resources towards taking it from there. But I think your point is, is excellent in that there is maybe a time and place for a founder to move on. But it's got to be the right time and place. Otherwise, you're just going to destroy all the progress that they made getting the company to that point. So I know I've kept to you fairly long. So if you don't mind, I'd like to wrap up with just you know one kind of two-parted question. One would be, what can the we in the community do to support you in this whole situation with Miyoko's Creamery? If there's anything, just let us know. And then two, what's next for you now?
0: Uh, Well, I've been getting a lot of love and support online, so thank you so much. Let your feelings be known to the company. So that would be, I guess, the one way. And, you know, check out my new (laughs) YouTube channel that I'm launching uh, next week, April 10th. Our first episode will be going up. Um, It's called The Vegan Good Life with Miyoko. And it's sort of a lifestyle cooking show. Um, So I'll be sharing lots of recipes, little Tidbits down at the sanctuary with the animals. It's all about not just cooking, but sharing the food with people and animals. There might be guest appearances by goats in the kitchen, etc. So it's just sort of a, a fun little show that I'm doing, just because I love connecting with people. I love connecting with you know the consumers, my readers, my audience, and you know it's just something that. I have fun doing, and and so now I have <laughs> I have time to do it. I don't have another business planned right now. I'm hoping that whatever next business venture I do start, it'll be crowd funded, community based, more stakeholders, and it will be very activist, unabashedly activist.
1: That's awesome. I wouldn't expect anything less than that. I love the idea of more crowd funded. So you have the community as a stakeholder, like you're saying rather than shareholders getting to determine everything, you get to bring everyone along for the ride. So that's awesome. So appreciate you again, taking the time to have this conversation. And I just appreciate you being you and being as bold as you are and putting your values and your passion forward and just showing others what it looks like to just, you know, let your light shine and do what you think is right and lead the way you want leadership to show up in the world so i appreciate all that you're doing and i'm excited to see what happens next
0: thank you so much gage i've enjoyed this
1: thank you thanks for listening if you'd like to learn more about miyoko and follow her on our next adventure go to youtube.com backslash at simple the vegan good life with miyoko all one word we'll also put that link in the show notes Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us ideas for who we should talk to next to ModernSpecies.com. And of course, if you work in the industry, come join our community at community.evolvecpg.com, and we'll go further, faster, together.